Hello everyone, it's December 6th, 2022. This week Artemis 1 rounds the bend, so to speak. It's on its way home. There have been a couple more small hiccups since last week, but overall it's been a very successful mission and we're coming up on the final stretch. So let's cross our fingers and talk about it and lift off! episode 388 of the Auto Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So ABL published uh, like a like a write-up on their Twitter account. Um, and we'll, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, but the tweet just said RS1 Flight 1 Update, and it's got a photo of their rocket and then a photo of a text document. They're still marching towards Flight 1, right? They still haven't uh, gotten off the launch pad. And so they they've named each of their launch attempts... Uh, F1A1, F1A2, F1A3, um, and then they uh, include the dates and then a quick summary of what's going on or, or what happened at each of those launch attempts. So attempt one was uh, November 14th, and it's pretty cool. They, um, at T minus 30 minutes, uh, a vendor valve in the stage one fuel pressurization system failed. That led to a gradual and then more rapid leak of helium into the fuel tank. Um, so they scrubbed, which makes a lot of sense, right? If, you're, if your fuel tank has too much helium in it, you're not going to be able to get um, as much propellant in there. And if you do, it's going to be at a very high pressure, higher than you would want it to be. So that's a good reason to, uh, to quit. It's interesting to me that they specify a vendor valve to kind of like push the blame off of themselves, but fair enough. Uh, F1A2 was... Um, November 17th. And there they got all the way down to T minus 1.8 seconds, which is uh, during ignition. And the abort criteria was low pressure in half of our gas generators, they say. And what's really cool is they also include a good uh, a good root cause for this. Uh, they figured out that it was due to insufficient liquid oxygen conditioning and chill-in. So basically their uh, engines were too warm and so they had incomplete ignition. Um, they had reduced the amount of liquid oxygen that were flowing through the engines to try and preserve as much of it for flight as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they basically fixed the issue by reverting to a more generous LOX chill. Okay, fair enough. Cool. Okay. Those are two legitimate issues. Uh, on attempt three, which was November 21st, they actually had uh, like their first uh, whoopsie, right? Like a mistake that's just, it's not an inherent part of the system. They made a mistake. Um, but it's it's not bad. Basically, um, they aborted again during ignition at T minus 1.75 seconds. So they got half a second farther. Five hundredths of a second further. <laughs> oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five milliseconds. <laughs> Wait, milliseconds are a thousand. Uh, yeah, 50, 50 milliseconds. Yeah. 50 milliseconds. It's cursed that time. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, a lot's happening there. It's in the middle of ignition. What are you going to do? So, right. They aborted due to low pressure in the main chamber TTEB system. So TTEB uh, is two fluids, TEA, TEB. Uh, so they're, they're a pyrophoric um, propellant. Uh, they're not good for uh, going places, but they're really good for getting your engine lit. You mix them and they they ignite on contact. That's what pyrophoric means. Um, so they had low pressure in the main chamber T-type system. The next sentence in their summary is, we cleared the gas generator hurdle from, F- from F1A2, but aborted on the next criteria at main chamber ignition, you know, 50 milliseconds later, right? So basically, they the pressure was low by just one PSI. So they had two narrow uh, abort conditions. Um, They were being too cautious. And they actually have a nice little bit of analysis in here. They said they have to strike a balance between false positive aborts, which are scrubs that don't need to happen, and false negative aborts, which is where you launch and wind up destroying your vehicle. And so in this case, they were biased a little too much towards avoiding false negatives. And if they had been just... 0.3% 0.3% less conservative, they would have flown. And so that's what they did. They they reevaluated and tweaked um, their TTEB pressure abort condition. 
And so now they are getting ready for F1A4, which will happen Wednesday, December 7th. Um, I, I guess we'll be talking about this at the end of the show. And uh, ho- hopefully that that will happen. Uh, hopefully they won't get to, you know, T minus 1.6 seconds and, and have another fit, another abort. And I, I liked how that worked perfectly that we're just like, oh, wow, they just really piled up right there next to each other. And indeed, it was the very next thing in the sequence <laughs> that they had to abort on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Kind of just checking them off the list as they go down <laughs> the uh, ignition sequence. Also, Chris says uh, to keep in mind that they did all their testing in a very different environment than they're launching in now. Uh, just due to the intensity of Kodiak winters. Uh, If they did their static firing uh, back in August or September, they're looking at a very different uh, environment to to do this launch in today or Wednesday. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's a good thing to think about. Cool. All right. Well, that was a good uh, top of the show. So I feel like that was very interesting. So that was its own pre-news news news segment. one update that we now have thanks to i think ben right you uh, wrote this up mm-hmm. which is really cool so i was going to ask at what point are we now in how do i put it uh it's journey back from the moon or yeah to the moon well i mean yeah journey back from the moon is the point that we're at um i put this in a little bit of chronological order but yeah they uh they are now out of uh uh dro the distant retrograde orbit so they are Currently, I believe um, Artemis is falling down towards the moon. Uh, it'll zip around the far side and then do its um, return-powered flyby uh, once it gets to Paralune, the the closest point to the moon, and that'll zip it out of uh, the moon's like sphere of influence, out of out of the moon's gravity, and uh, send it shooting home to Earth. But before we get to that, um, I thought something really interesting that came up is uh, NASA Spaceflight put out an article talking about um, the RS-25 uh, performance. So they they pointed out that Aerojet Rocketdyne did um, a, a quick look data review right after launch, um, with, within an hour of receiving the telemetry, um, and then a more in-depth review um, happened by a, a joint Aerojet Rocketdyne NASA review team. Um, and that came out on the 27th, I believe. And it just, it's so like nostalgic to have these rockets or the, these engines flying. So the, the engines that flew were serial numbers 2045, 2060, uh, 2056, and 2058. Um, Dennis found a, a really great uh, like history summary for these very engines. We'll have a link in the show notes. But just like to give you a perspective, these four engines collectively were responsible for launching 118 people into space. And that's individuals, not uh, single, single flights. Uh, I believe they probably launched more people if you're counting each time that they went. I mean, by, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, 118 different people relied on these engines. Um, and now they're sitting at the bottom of the Atlantic, which I don't know, really sucks. Airjet Rocketdyne collects over a hundred different measurements, uh, during flight. Uh, about 60 of them are like highly focused, like the, the measurements that they really care about to, to talk about the, the health of the engines. They installed updated controllers. I mean, they did a bunch of updates to get these engines ready to fly on SLS. And one of the things they did was they upgraded the controller boards and now they sample at 50 Hertz. I don't know what they sampled at before, but I can't imagine it was 50 Hertz. And I kind of doubt that they had as many measurements that they were collecting, Um, especially because a lot of these measurements are like vibration sensors. And I I bet that those were added, uh, added later. I could be wrong on that. I wasn't able to track down the exact updates. But anyway, the the review uh, from everybody involved, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, and NASA, said that they basically performed perfectly. Aerojet, Rocketdyne says that, you know, before launch, they do a bunch of simulations to establish, like, their baselines. Their, their baselines are, like, several sigmas accurate. Um, and um, they said that, like, every single metric was just, like, in between the predicted lines. It's just spot on performance. Also, um, 
moving on to a different engine on the vehicle, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about the launch abort system motors and whether or not the launch abort system uh, was enabled for the flight. Obviously, they're going to have to uh, jettison the launch shroud, which is using the LAS system. But we came to the conclusion that no, it, it turns out that they actually weren't going to perform an in-flight abort if something went wrong. What's really cool is I found out that these aren't even the same motors that would do an in-flight abort. These uh, LAS motors were built by Aerojet Rocketdyne. The ones that will fly on human flights uh, are built by Northrop Grumman. So it's not even the same manufacturer. It's pretty cool. Hmm. Um, so right, back to the RS-25 or the, the SSME, right? They will be continuing to use legacy RS-25s for Artemis 2, 3, and 4. Artemis 5 will be using uh, the new engines that they'll be building, the new RS-25s that they'll be building. And those new engines are going to have a lot of changes, Um like beyond the updates that were done uh, to move these engines from uh, shuttle STS to SLS. Um, they will be cheaper engines to produce. Most of that comes down to uh, 3D printed parts, which uh, are reducing uh, the cost uh, to fabricate, but they're also reducing the time to fabricate, which increases the pace that they can go and or increases the amount of testing time that they have or the amount of slack in their schedule, but it also reduces the amount of money you got to pay people. And uh, the, the major driver of that is that with these 3D printed parts, they don't have to do as many weld joints. Um, and like welding is such an intensive process for something as high requirements as a, as a rocket engine. You got to do the weld and then you got to x-ray it and do do all this analysis. Um, there are five major parts that will be 3D printed. They were looking at a total of 45 different candidates. Uh, but my favorite part that is being 3D printed is the pogo suppressor. And I feel like a lot of people love the pogo suppressor, but on this show, it's definitely um, such a uh, an early throwback. Like it was one of the first real deep dives that we did on this show. It just, it's got a special place in my heart. And so now the Pogo suppressor is going to be 3D printed. Uh, in total, uh, switching to these 3D printed parts will result in about a 40% cost savings, um, which, which is definitely nice. Also, the new engines are not only going to be cheaper and faster to produce, but they'll also be more powerful. Um, when we talk about RS-25s, uh, the amount of thrust that they put out is uh, a weird scale. I think a lot of people know this. Um, the original um, rated maximum thrust is called 100% throttle. And as they've increased the rated maximum thrust or the, the rated nominal thrust, instead of making each percent throttle a little smaller, they've just kept it all at the same size and then added on top of it. So shuttle uh, by the end was able to produce 109% throttle. It, it's you know 9% more thrust than they could do before. Um, these new SSMEs uh, will be able to run at a nominal 111% throttle, which is pretty neat. Uh, Deathkin in the chat, before I even said 111, uh, said these engines go to 11. It is absolutely true. <laughs> they, they go to 111. It's faster to build, cheaper, and it's more efficient. Like, I don't know, what more can you ask for? Except for the fact that, you know, they only get used once now, which sucks. But um it's nice to see them yeah. uh, still being built. Uh, mm. I don't know. It just makes me kind of, like you said, a little bit, I think you mentioned being a little bit nostalgic or something, or maybe that was about the Pogo Oscillator, but these are very, you know, just very impressive engines. And it's, it's, I don't know, I actually am surprised by how happy I am to see them still being built, I guess. I, I don't know. It's just cool because they're such cool engines. Mm. They're the uh, Ferrari of rocket engines, as someone at NASA yep. said once. <laughs> yep. And it's a Ferrari that's getting a little bit cheaper. So <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the point. It's also getting a little closer. Uh, they hit their halfway mark on November 28th. I don't know if you two noticed, David, you might've noticed this, uh, but in the show notes, I put a photo uh, from like an Orion selfie um, that they took as they hit that furthest distance, far, farthest, not furthest, th that farthest distance uh, from Earth and the Moon, the midpoint in the in the distant retrograde orbit. Um, that happened after the last episode 
was recorded. So we didn't talk about it because it hadn't happened yet, but I, I included it. We'll see what happens in the next couple of days. I'll have another photo uh, in there for these show notes. Um, I don't know if anybody pays attention, but we um, we put a bunch of photos in and then one of them gets selected to be like the hero photo. Um, and if you're subscribed to our newsletter, that turns into the header for the newsletter. And it also is the like preview image. If you embed a link to the show notes on our website, if you take those that website link and put it in a tweet or something, the social media preview uh, grabs that hero image. And so for the last two shows, the hero image has been a photo from Orion, like an Orion selfie. It's going to be another one this week. I'm pretty darn sure. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but it'll be another, uh, hopefully we'll have another good selfie that we can't yet talk about that'll go in the show notes. So the RS-25 main engines uh, performed flawlessly. Basically, Orion has performed the next best thing to flawlessly as well. Um, NASA says that only minor and non-consequential issues have been encountered so far. Uh, Two of them uh, I found listed in a Space News article. These are pretty cool. One of them was an issue with the RAM in one of the star trackers, uh, but they concluded, nope, this is not a problem with the spacecraft. This is a problem, or this is an expected behavior. Uh, it's just a byproduct of the flight environment. So I think what that means is they got uh, a single event upset or two um, just from the radiation out in space, maybe even the radiation passing through the Van Allen belts um, and probably uh, caused one of the star trackers uh, to reboot or something. It, it's kind of weird to, to say that this is a byproduct of the flight environment and therefore there's nothing we're going to do about it. But you know, it for real, like that's the way space is. Mm. Maybe you could harden it, but why harden a part that doesn't need to be hardened if they've decided that that's an acceptable outcome. Great. Don't do anything about it. Don't add mass. Uh, the other issue I found, uh, was they had an unexpected LOS. I don't know if you guys heard about this. They couldn't talk to Orion for like 45 minutes. Yeah. We, we talked about it briefly last week, but we did. Oh, did we? didn't know what was going on. Like what did okay. happen? So this is perfect update for. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. I totally forgot that we had talked about it. Uh, but yeah, now we have the answer. It, it was a misconfiguration with DSN. So DSN is a deep space network. It's all the, the, the three, is it just three sites? It's a four sites. There's three sites with, yeah, yeah, they have, and they have the big, I think 70 meter dishes and then a handful yep. of smaller ones too. At each and, and they're placed about 120 degrees apart as close to the earth's equator as we can get. So they can point in every direction. Spain, California, and Australia. Yep. And so uh, DSN was configured for a data rate that Orion was not configured for. And so they, they were just talking to each other at the wrong speeds. This is why you hear all of that gibberish when you start up a connection to the internet using a, a modem, like a telephone modem. All of that noise is just your modem and the server's modem agreeing on the fact that they can hear each other, agreeing on the fact that they are both modems, uh, turning off... Uh, some optional features in the phone line and then deciding how they're going to talk. Like <laughs> uh, Colin in the chat says it's a total Arduino level mistake. Yep. Uh, it's, it sucks that it happened, but that's a very, very easy uh, thing to do. Uh, or at least it's a very, very easy thing to fix, right? It's nothing wrong with any of the hardware. It's just a, just a misconfiguration. So things have been going so well that on the outbound trip, that is to say the, the trip up to halfway through the DRO, NASA decided to add seven uh, additional objectives. The biggest one uh, is to, quote, expand the thermal environment, which sounds really weird, but it's really simple. It's just characterizing how the vehicle behaves thermally. So the idea is Apollo would do the barbecue roll. It would spin along its long axis so that each portion of you know the sides of its barrel were presented to the sun um, for an equal amount of time as it as it did this like rotisserie chicken roll. Orion is built differently. It has solar panels, so it it can't do that spin. At least it can't do it quite as easily. And so Orion is designed to fly with its tail facing the sun. That's also kind of nice. It keeps the crew compartment 
uh, dark so that you can look out the window at the stars. Um, it keeps the crew compartment cool. That's like kind of the main purpose of this. Uh, but it also keeps the uh, solar panels pointed at the sun and it keeps the engine or the, the main engine warm enough. Um, do you guys know what that main engine is? This is really cool. It's an ohms. Yeah. It, an it's shuttle. an ohms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just another part off a shuttle. It makes me, makes me feel so good to see a lot of this stuff fly again. Yeah, no, that is so cool. Um, so anyway, so normally Orion flies with its tail pointed at the sun, and it's got about a 20-degree slop that it can it can handle. And if it is outside of that 20-degree box, I mean, it's really a circle, but they call it a box. Um, if it's outside that 20-degree box um, for three hours or more, the protocol says that they have to get back into the correct uh, the correct orientation and stay there for 10 hours before they can start their thrusters up again to make sure that those thrusters are warm enough. Um, and so expanding the thermal environment in this case just means uh, figuring out exactly where that 20 degree box is. Like, is it 20 degrees? Is it 21? Mm. Uh, can we eke another 50 milliseconds out of this? Um, and then they're also looking at you know, when they get out of it, how do those temperatures change when they get back into it? How do those temperatures change and, and coming up with, uh, the best, uh, thermal recovery rules that they can, um, so that they don't have excess safety measures. Um, but they also have adequate safety measures. It's interesting. I, I was going to ask, why do you need to wait 10 hours for those engines? And, and you're saying it's because they need to be warm enough. I'm kind of surprised that they wouldn't be warm enough given that they are still generally facing the sun. But I guess if they're in any kind of shadow, then the temperature could drop. Yeah. Well, and that, that's the thing is, is they're not a hundred percent sure what that angle is. You know, they, they've done probably vacuum thermal tests that have informed computer models, but yeah, I guess we don't really know, but you can imagine if you, if you went 180 degrees and pointed the nose of the spacecraft at the sun, those engines are going to be able to chill down really well. Sure. And, but I wouldn't think that that would be a problem for the engines. I mean, normally it's not for most rocket engines. Oh, no, no, no. There, there are engine heaters used all the time on spacecraft. And I guess you just don't have that, huh? E either they don't have it or they're not strong enough to overcome the, the cold soak. I'm not sure. Yeah, that was interesting because I, I guess I never considered it, but also... In my mind, I'm thinking it's still more or less facing that direction. Plus, the engines are attached to the whole thing, and there's a lot of, you know, I would think that there would be a lot of conductivity. So, you know, like they're going to be warm like one way or the other, but I guess not, or at least not warm enough. But I don't know what that temperature needs to be. Yeah. Um, and I'm assuming it needs to be, I guess, pretty warm. Yeah. I don't know any of the specifics, but like I know that this is a, a not unusual thing. Okay. So they, they got halfway through the DRO on November 28th. Um, they departed the DRO on December 2nd. It's currently the 4th. We're recording this on Sunday the 4th. Um, so they, they've been dropping down towards the moon for two days now. Um, they will be doing that uh, return-powered flyby I mentioned on December 5th. Uh, so that's tomorrow when we're recording this. It'll be after the next show comes out. And uh, they will be yeah slingshotting around the, the backside of the moon uh, and coming home. Um, I don't know if you can call it a slingshot if they're uh, powering up their engines, but no, <laughs> no slingshot as described in science fiction is ever really a slingshot. Uh, they will be splashing down off the coast of San Diego, uh, not in the middle of the Atlantic. I don't know how far off the coast, but it's being described as off the coast of San Diego rather than, you know, the East Pacific. Right, right. That will be happening on December 11th. If it's like EFT-1, right? Because that was the same, that splashed off the coast of San Diego. And it wasn't far. It was, again, like maybe 20, 30 miles, something like that. Maybe it was a bit mm -hmm. further than that, but not too far off the coast. So, yeah, yeah, hmm. it's pretty close. Uh, do you guys know if they will be doing that for the crewed Artemis missions? I mean, I assume, I guess, because they did it for both yeah. EFT and they're doing it for this. So it mm. seems like yeah. that's just what they're looking at. Exactly. That, that'd that be my guess. That's It, it sure ain't Apollo anymore, guys. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting datum, uh, Emery in the chat is pointing out when we were talking about the warming the... Uh, ohms engine on the european service module that the uh ohms pod engines are hypergolic and run more efficient the hotter they are so that's another thing mm, to okay. talk about when it comes yeah. to this thermal loading that yeah. those those hypergolic uh catalyst beds often are heated too i believe so i mentioned uh the main engine 
uh, on the service module is an ohms engine from shuttle. Um, this particular ohms engine flew on 19 STS missions. Very cool. Sucks mm. that it's going to get dunked in the ocean uh, and or not recovered, maybe even burned up in the atmosphere. I tend to think that the engine itself is probably going to come through not too bad. So uh, on the way out, they added seven objectives. On the way home, they've four added objectives. Uh, two of those objective, objectives have to do with um, a helium pressurization valve. Um, they want to characterize how much it leaks. Um, and I don't know why they need two objectives for that. I <laughs> didn't find anything more specific. Um, they're also going to be testing attitude control maneuvers, speeding up their slew rate so they can get from one, one angle to another. Um, and then they're also testing out a new control mode uh, for the attitude control thrusters that could potentially save uh, propellant. Um, and they, they say new mode. It's probably uh, just as uh, old as one that they're using. It's just a different one that might be a little more risky. Who knows? Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one that they haven't used. So they're going to be testing all of those things as well on the way home. And then, like I said, they're getting they're getting all the way back home on December 11th. So I'm not going to be uh, here probably for the next three weeks. Um, I'm out of town next week, then I'm back, and then I'm out of town the two weeks after that. So I guess four weeks in total. I'm not sure if I'm going to be here in two weeks. So you, you guys, like, you're going to have to put out good shows that I can, like, listen to and catch up on uh, the spaces. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be so out of touch when I come back. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is the first? First up, Phantom Space Corp wins NASA launch task order. Phantom Space has been awarded four task orders to launch four CubeSat missions as part of NASA's Venture Class Acquisition of Dedicated and Rideshare, or VADER, program. VADER intends to enable the agency to procure high-risk commercial launches at competitive prices, as well as allowing a greater diversity of launch providers. Phantom Space is one of 13 companies selected to bid on Vader contracts earlier this year, a group that also includes ABL, Firefly, Northrop Grumman, SpaceX, and Blue Origin. Next up, Blue Walker 3 reaches full brightness on orbit. AST Space Mobility fully deployed its Blue Walker 3 satellite last month, making it one of the 20 brightest objects in the night sky at max apparent magnitude of 1, thanks to a 693-square-foot solar-slash-antenna array. AST Space Mobile plans to launch 168 of these satellites in order to provide mobile phone coverage from low Earth orbit. However, the International Astronomical Union has called for further study of the satellite's effects on astronomical observations due to its brightness in both the visible and lower frequency wavelengths that could interfere with ground-based observations. In response, AST Space Mobile said they are researching new anti-reflective material and will avoid operating in radio quiet zones. And finally, IROSA installation and a power issue. A third IROSA solar array was installed on the ISS this week during an EVA lasting just over seven hours. During their EVA, astronauts Josh Cassida and Frank Rubio also addressed an issue that occurred last month with the station's sequential shunt unit 1B, which had experienced two power resets before tripping off. The astronauts disconnected a cable in the unit, thus isolating the affected part of the array and restoring 75% of the array's functionality. During an upcoming EVA later this month, a fourth IROSA will be installed, increasing the station's total power from 160 to 215 kilowatts. So let's move on to uh, this week in spaceflight history. And uh, we got one winner, just Deathkin. Uh, and then I guess, Dennis, you want to give some shout outs to people who made some guesses that were not correct because uh, I guess you had a really tricky clue. Yeah, or at least th there was another event that could have worked. There was, I guess, a very prominent launch of a SpaceX vehicle that I don't want to go into too much de detail about, but ultimately a splash down in the ocean and thus feeling salty, which was the clue could have fit for that. So uh, Chris, aka Sty Garfield, Leon Running Man, Uncle Willie, and Cy Kyle all guessed that. So that's a good guess, but it wasn't really what I was going for. And yeah, while it could have worked, I don't think this was a mistake. I think this was just a tricky uh, clue to have come up with. And so super shout out to Deathkin for getting uh, the actual event. The actual uh, the event <laughs> that I was intending to talk about was December 7th, 2010. And it was when Akatsuki failed to enter Venusian orbit. And so this one was not a launch. This was a spacecraft that had launched months earlier and it failed to enter an orbit. So therefore... Yeah, it was challenging in that regard. So I like that 
you know, all you rose to the level and, uh, but a super, you know, <laughs> shout out to Deathkin for managing to get it. Uh, Akatsuki, you may have, might have heard about, and I think it's topical for a couple of reasons uh, that I'll you know end the segment with. But the event is not about the launch, but we still have to talk about it to figure out you know what the spacecraft is and how did it get to where it was on December seventh, twenty ten. You might also see it sometimes called uh, Planet C or the Venus Climate Orbiter, and so uh, it was uh, designed and kind of built by uh, ISAS, the uh, Japanese um, Institute, and uh, the launch was actually in the summer, or I guess late spring, uh, May 21st, uh, 2010. And it was launched on an H-2A rocket, right? The big one, of you know, at the time, the big uh, Japanese uh, uh, launch vehicle. And uh, it had a really cool ride share. It didn't fly on its own. Um, it actually had two payload attach fittings uh, with the two larger payloads piggybacking on each other, one underneath the other. So I, like, the equivalent of like, you know, if you have a table, you put one payload under the table and the other payload on top of the table. And then it also had two shelves that they set up on the sides where they also would release these uh, smaller satellites. And so one of those shelves had what was called the J-Pod or JAXA Pico Satellite Deployer. And so it was kind of like, you know, a CubeSat deployer, uh, but it was firing out uh, not quite CubeSats, but still uh, small sats. Uh, the Waseda Sat 2, KSAT, and Nagai, which were these from different uh, universities, uh, the first two at least were. And um, they were doing cool things, but that's not the thing I want to talk about. So you imagine, right, after the you know second engine cutoff, the J-Pod shoots out these three satellites off the shelf. And then Akatsuki, sitting on top of the upper payload attach fitting, deploys. And then the payload attach fitting underneath it deploys. And then uh, Icaros, the solar sail, super, super cool mission, uh, was actually hidden underneath Akatsuki in a, in a sense. And so it was spun up and deployed. And then Unitech 1, which was a, another one of these small satellites sitting on the other shelf, was then deployed. And so it had a lot of stuff going on. But one way or another, Akatsuki, that's what this twist is about. And it was launched. Its solar array paddles successfully deployed. It entered three-axis stabilization, all nominal. Everything was good. And I say solar array paddles because if you want to visualize it, it, it looks just like you know Hayabusa and a lot of these other Japanese spacecraft. It's a box with uh, solar array, the solar arrays being two, you know, paddles is a good descriptor at the end of kind of beams leaving the uh, the main uh, primary bus. And as far as instruments go, Akatsuki was all about taking images. Um, it had five cameras on board that were the main science payloads. And so there were two near-infrared imagers, one at longer wavelengths uh, in the mid-infrared. So that one doesn't really care whether it's day or night. You're going to get the same high-quality images either way. Um, a UV imager. There's been some beautiful UV images of Venus taken by Akatsuki. Um, and then one that was specifically designed for uh, identifying lightning and airglow by having kind of very quick uh, shutter speeds, or maybe not even shutter speeds, but integration speeds. And so uh, it also did radio occultation, but that's the science that they were planning to do. Really wanted to focus on, you know, you think of Venus, you think of its big, heavy atmosphere. And so that's what it was going to be taking care of. It was going to be analyzing and studying the winds and the atmosphere of Venus. Now, important to the clue and feeling salty is the propulsion system. So I do want to talk about that briefly. And so the propulsion system, it had a single large engine, the Orbital Maneuvering Engine, or OME, and that was capable of 500 newtons of thrust. And that was a uh, hypergolic uh, uh, hydrazine and uh, mixed oxides of nitrogen-3 or MON-3. So in other words, basically uh, nitrogen tetroxide with 3% of nitrous oxide uh, mixed in there. And so that was its big beefy engine for the orbital maneuvers. As you can imagine, heading to Venus, you're going to want to use that to break and enter orbit around the planet. And then it also had its RCS system, which was eight 23 Newton monoprop and four 3 Newton monoprop thrusters that were all using the same hydrogen from, you know, that would also power the uh, OME, orbital maneuvering engine. And so all of those will come into <laughs> the story. Now, everything's nominal. It's looking great. It's doing some science on its way to uh, the, you know, Venus, our, our, our often called our twin planet, because it's very similar in terms of bulk properties, you know, mass and radius, things like that. Uh, and so on December 5th, 
the uh, timeline command started uh, to get ready for entering, uh, trying to do its orbit insertion, the VOI, Venus orbit insertion. And then the next day, December 6th, um, its attitude control maneuvers were completed. So it's in the correct orientation and it's ready for its burn. And on December 7th, which... You know, it's December 7th uh, in Japan, but, you know, depending where you are on the Earth, it also could have been December 6th. So sometimes you might see that it failed to enter uh, Venusian orbit on December 6th. But either way, I'm going to stick with the uh, the Japanese uh, timing. Uh, on December 7th at 0849 uh, Japan Standard Time, the OME engine began its burn. And less than uh, two minutes later, the spacecraft was going to be occulted by Venus and so there was going to be a blackout, and they knew that they weren't going to get any telemetry during this uh, 10-ish minutes or so, and so no big deal. And finally, the blackout's over. They cannot find the spacecraft. It's not where it's supposed to be. As you can imagine, there's probably some panic. Uh, so JAXA, and you know, with uh, the help of their uh, colleagues at NASA. They used the DSN, which we talked about it earlier in the show, right? Deep Space Network to do some hunting to try to find it. And it took until uh, 1026 JST. So this is uh, like an hour and a half later to find it not where it's supposed to be. And Ben, the picture you put in the chat uh, is, is perfect for understanding uh uh, or, or visualizing its real trajectory compared to its planned one. Yeah, this photo is the visual equivalent of the sad trombone sound. Yep. So instead of uh, that uh, orbit, the inbound trajectory being bent so much that you end up settling into a nice uh, elliptical orbit around Venus, it only bent a little bit. And you were still unbound and were not going to stay uh, orbiting around uh, Venus anymore, orbiting around Venus, period. And so, yeah, so that happened and thank goodness they were able to find it and they, you know, they're, they're pulling down this telemetry and trying to figure out, you know, exactly what was going on. And they noticed that it had automatically switched to a spin stabilized mode, which is when it's in its safe hold mode. And so aims when things go wrong, aim the solar panels at the uh, sun and rotate that way and do not try to do your three axis spin stabilization anymore. And so they knew something was wrong. And unfortunately, they were getting low gain uh, uh, information, right? Uh, unidire- or omnidirectional, right? They couldn't, obviously, with this issue, they couldn't just point the high gain antenna back at Earth because it wasn't where it's supposed to be. Or its attitude wasn't what it was, it was supposed to be. And so they eventually were able to do some detective work and find out that the OME only fired for two and a half minutes. So it shut off about 10 minutes too early. And so that's why it wasn't able to break enough to get in orbit. And now it was in a heliocentric orbit still, but actually getting closer to the sun than Venus is. And so it was in an even lower heliocentric orbit. And they ultimately recognized that after doing some investigating, that a faulty valve was identified. They had enough, uh, I guess, transducers all along the different parts of the OME that they were able to back out exactly what had happened. At fault was uh, a check valve between the helium and the hydrazine tank, right? So you've got your pressurized helium tank. It goes through two check valves, CVF, which goes to the fuel tank, and CVO, which goes to the oxidizer tank. And that's going to go and pressurize your hypergalls to go and blast them into the combustion chamber and propel your spacecraft. And something had blocked uh, this check valve, CVF, the one on the fuel side. And it turns out that vapor from the hydrazine and the MON3 can create salt deposits at very low temperatures. I'm not exactly sure if they knew about this ahead of time, that this might've been an issue, or it was something that they kind of retroactively realized was gonna be a problem, Um, but they were able to recreate this on the ground. And so they think that on the outbound trip there, that these sulfate deposits were created and ended up clogging the check valve which was reducing the amount of gaseous helium flowing to that side of the propulsion system. So when they fired the OME, the flow rate of the fuel was lower than it was supposed to be. So it was burning oxidizer rich, which means that's going to be hot. (laughs) And so the temperature grew too high and the engine failed. And by failed, it sounds like it done blew up, right? Um, They think that they destroyed the nozzle and there was damage they ultimately realized to the throat as well. 
in addition to going boom to an extent, that gave the spacecraft a good transverse force, knocking it off of how it was supposed to be aimed and its, you know, its proper attitude. And so that's why it went to safe mode because it was like, oh my goodness, you know, have I been hit by an alien spacecraft or something? Why am I suddenly, right. you know, thrusting off to the side like that? <laughs> and so, yeah, so this was bad. And I remember when this happened, I was, this was very disappointing to hear because this was going to be, um, first off, it was disappointing because uh, JAXA had previously, you know, launched the failed Nozomi mission about a decade before then. Uh, and that was going to go to Mars and that didn't work out for them. And now this one was going to be a Venus mission, which, you know, Venus doesn't get enough attention, I don't think. Uh, and at least hasn't uh, for a while, but hopefully uh, now with uh, all these, this new fleet we're sending there, Venus will be getting a lot more attention. So yeah, so it was going to, it was, you know, the idea was to have a second spacecraft there. Uh, the European Venus Express was going to be working, you know, in tandem with Akatsuki and we we're going to do all this great science, but it looked like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So what were the next steps? Okay, we've regained uh, communication with the satellite. We know what's, we basically were able to track down what had happened. So the first idea was, okay, maybe we could still run the main engine, the OME, in blowdown mode, where you just have whatever pressurized gas is in there, you just have that basically provide your thrust. So you don't rely on your helium tank anymore. And as a result, you can still get some some push out of that. Um, as you can imagine, as it fires, the pressure and the gas decreases. And so your thrust keeps tailing off. They thought, okay, but we can still try it. Almost a year later on September of 2011, they did a test of this, but the thrust was only 10% of what they uh, had basically calculated and expected it to be um, with the propulsion system configured the way that they had done. And so they think then that there was enough damage to the throat that it, it just wasn't working. You were basically just venting you know, <laughs> your propellants out the back of your uh, spacecraft. And so then a month later, they're like, all right, we have two propulsion systems. We had the OME and then we also had the RCS. So uh, in October, they dumped all the oxidizer overboard because where they were going, we don't need oxidizer. Uh, we're going to just use the hydrazine in the RCS system. And so they prepared for what they would need to do. And so uh, in November, uh, another month later, they did uh, three burns with the RCS system for a total of 243.8 meters per second of delta V. And that would enable a Venus account, a Venus encounter in November of 2015. Okay, so we're losing half a decade, but hey, better late than never. And so one of the biggest worries at the time was the thermal conditions now in this you know, heliocentric orbit that's bringing it closer to the sun than it would with Venus. I mean, not dramatically, it's not like diving in like, you know, uh, that much closer, but close enough that they were worried, but that turned out to not be an issue. And they were still doing some science because uh, after all, you have every part of the spacecraft is working fine, except this OME, the engine that blew up. Half a decade, five years later to the date on December 7th of 2015, which I guess I could have used if I wanted this to be the, <laughs> the clue, <laughs> it successfully entered Venusian orbit using the RCS thrusters to break. And so that put it in a much wider orbit than they wanted originally. Um, initially, it was going to be in a, uh, it was planned to be in a 30 hour orbit uh, that would take it out to 80,000 kilometers from Venus. And that would be just the right rate to be able to like track the winds that are orbiting around, the winds don't orbit, sorry, track the winds that are uh, going around Venus. And instead, it was actually being taken out to 440,000 kilometers. So almost uh, two weeks uh, of an orbital period but it was still around the planet. And that was great. All the uh, science instruments were working. And so, yeah, they, they it, it, it started doing science. Some of the cameras have died since then, but it's been doing wonderful science to this very day and it is still operational. And so I mentioned that uh, this is topical in a couple ways. And one of the ways that it's topical is that uh, uh, Damia Buick on Twitter uh, had earlier this year, tweeted out an amazing photo that uh, she processed. It's false color, but it shows the kind of winds and detail that you can pull out. It's stunning. And so go check it out. And it's, That's it's science fiction stunning. It, it has right? no right to look that good. <laughs> it is beautiful. Yeah. And so that's that's uh, that that was something that I remember it's, uh, I saw earlier this year. And so I wanted to definitely uh, highlight uh, this picture. And then also, right, the 
going back to Artemis 1, um, the secondary payloads that flew on board, one of them was Omotenashi, the uh, would have been a lunar lander. And that was, you know, a JAXA spacecraft. And in Omotenashi's case, right, it didn't fire to break and descend to the moon like they were supposed to. But, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, because I actually didn't look into this enough as I should have before bringing this up now. If I, I believe I read that they were, had an, a second opportunity potentially later. So if they could troubleshoot and figure out another way to break the spacecraft, either to get its main, you know, breaking motor to fire or to do some other clever thing. I'm guessing it's a CubeSat. They're going to have to basically get the motor to work um, or get it to stop tumbling or get it to do something. So anyway, I just bring that up to say that if anyone can do it, as a proven track record of fixing spacecraft that miss their target on their first approach, JAXA has that track record. And so, gambate, good luck, fingers crossed, and we're pulling for you. So, in any event, that was this week in spaceflight history. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, I'm not at all shocked that you picked an event with a lot of Japanese words. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, like, especially that last photo that you mentioned, uh, I think that is probably going to beat out any uh, Orion photo for the the hero photo this week oh yeah yeah so good all right well uh next week is the 13th to the 19th of december uh normally it would be me but i'm not going to be here so david do you have a clue for us i do so next week in 1970 the clue is that's a long way to go to hard boil an egg you're given private eye vibes He's a real hard-boiled egg. Hard-boiled detective. <laughs> the city was smoky, but then again, it's always smoky. <laughs> okay, so let's do a whole bunch of upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, ben, you got the first one. Yep, it's OneWeb 15. This is 40 OneWeb internet satellites going up. So uh, we're not 100% sure how many are up in space right now, but it's like over 140 or or it's definitely under over 140 it's over 440 so i mean we're looking in in you know in the mid 400s for these like serial numbers here um the constellation in total is going to be 648 um 60 spares included um so this is going to be launching on a falcon 9 block 5 on tuesday december 6th at 2237 hours UTC. Uh, it's flying out of Cape Canaveral, slick 39A. And then after that, we have another Falcon 9 launch on the 7th, and that is launching Hakuto R or Hakuto R M1 and the Lunar Flashlight. So Hakuto R is the commercial lunar lander developed by a private Japanese company. So that's pretty cool. That launch is also carrying a CubeSat from NASA, the Lunar Flashlight, um, which will be searching for water ice on the moon's south pole. Uh, and that's launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5 at 0804 UTC from Cape Canaveral Space Launch Complex 40. And next up, you all know about it because of the top of the show. <laughs> we have AVL Space Systems. Once again, that RS-1 launch vehicle going to attempt its maiden flight with a pair of satellites for L2 Aerospace. So this is December 7th, Wednesday, with a window from 2200 UTC to 0130 UTC the next day, December 8th. And so, again, it's up in chilly winter uh, Pacific Space Force Complex, Alaska, uh, from launch pad 3C, and good luck. Yeah, hopefully they'll do it. After that is uh, the Artemis 1 Orion status briefing to preview atmospheric entry and splashdown. That's going to be happening on NASA TV uh, on Thursday, December 8th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. After that, on the 9th, uh, we have the launch of an Electron. The name of that mission is Virginia is for Launch Lovers. I love that name. Uh, so this is a rideshare <laughs> mission that has three Hawkeye 360 satellites, which I think are Earth observation satellites. And then it also just lists some other payloads. So we don't know exactly what those are. Um, we just know they're going. Hawkeye's uh, RF frequency, if I remember correctly. Okay. That style of EO. So the launch time for that is from 2300 on Friday to zero uh, one hundred hours on Saturday. So, and this is launching from Wallops, Virginia, and that's I guess why we have the name that we do. Um, and it'll be launching from Launch Complex Two. Check that out. I think that yeah, this will be kind of cool to watch it launch from Virginia. Pretty awesome. Oh yeah, super awesome. And then on December eleventh, we've got our planetary event happening, and this is the Parker Solar Probe's perihelion number fourteen. So again, continuing to be ridiculous and going at stupid speeds. 
it will pass 9.2 million kilometers from the sun at a speed of 163 kilometers per second. That's 163 kilometers per second in a 96-day period. And so this is the fifth of seven perihelions at this orbit before it does another Venus flyby and falls into an even deeper and faster orbit. After that, we have coverage of Orion's uh, atmospheric reentry and splashdown. This will be the end of the Artemis 1 mission. That will be happening on Sunday, December 11th. Uh, coverage will begin on uh, NASA TV at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Splashdown is scheduled at 12.40 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, that absolutely should be right on the dot because uh, orbital mechanics, <laughs> orbital <laughs> dynamics. And their coverage is going to continue uh, through Orion's handover from Mission Control in Houston to the Exploration Ground Systems Recovery Team teams uh, out in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and then at around 2.45 p.m. Eastern Time, again on Sunday, December 11th, um, NASA TV is going to be airing uh, a post-splashdown news conference, uh, which uh, should be pretty interesting as well. Uh, hopefully it's just going to be like, yep, everything went fine. Nothing exciting happened. All right. And then finally, we have the launch of an Ariane 5 in the ECA Plus configuration. So this will be carrying um, a Galaxy 35 and 36, which are both uh, geostationary communication satellites operated by Intelsat. It's also carrying an MTG-I1, which is uh, the first of the uh, EU METSATs, third generation of weather satellites. Uh, the launch time is at 2030 UTC, and of course, it's launching from Kourou in French Guiana from Launch Area 3. So uh, yeah, you can totally watch that one. It'll be cool to watch that lift off. And I think that's it for this week, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay, and so with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Deathkin, Mike, VT, The Greek, Delta V, Jonesy, Uncle Willie, Chris H, Colin, Emery, Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend about us. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign affiliate links and more ways to help us at theorbitalmechanics.com slash support. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all on Orbit next week. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.